And this time, uh, we're doing a special Halloween edition, um, complete with a list of all the top Halloween films that we like to watch during the, uh, the holiday. So, this time, we're not really covering just one movie, we're covering 15 for the price of one episode. Uh, or so. Or so. Or, yeah, <laughs> or so. Um, so, this time, we're going to be switching back and forth between... All different kinds of horror movies that uh, really get us into the spirit of Halloween. Um, and uh, as you can hear behind us, we've got like a torture factory of sorts going on. So fun times all around. Um, Martin, what are you drinking today? Uh, today, um, moving on to beer number two now. Yeah, already you're on yeah. beer number two. Um, so, because we drank the fir- same first beer, so I'll let you describe the first beer first. But... Right now, I'm enjoying a Sam Adams Harvest Pumpkin Ale. Uh, it's not your greatest pumpkin ale, but it's still pretty delicious. Pumpkin-y, got a nice spice to it. Fits with the nice October season and the cool weather we're experiencing up here in uh, upstate New York now. I like that one. I like the Harvest Pumpkin. I'm not a huge pumpkin fan myself, but when I do have one, I like the Sam's, I like the Saranac. I think Saranac makes a better pumpkin ale. Saranac makes a pretty good pumpkin ale. And, and it's even uh, better than the Growler. Which I like, you know, I love. I love the Jack O'Lantern Growler. Yeah, yeah, I like that one too. Should, you know, what we should have got because we haven't had it in like almost five years now. Is a nice Sam Fat Jack. Yeah, the double pumpkin. The that Fat Jack. Made. Yeah, yeah, I've had that one too, and I, you know, even though I don't really like pumpkin that much, I can drink that one. I think that one's pretty good. It's very so. spicy. It is very spicy. Um, and then there's also like they have a, a few different double pumpkins and imperial pumpkins and. Even um, Red Hook makes the uh, the pumpkin pumpkin porter. Porter, I haven't which tried. Is pretty good. I, I I haven't really drank a lot of. Re- this kind of get a little off topic, but I've only had like their Longhammer IPA and the um, Audible Ale, which I do like the Audible yeah. Ale. From what I hear is, ever since they got bought out by yeah. uh, Anheuser Busch InBev, yeah, their quality has gone, gone downhill. Downhill. Yeah, I don't know. I bought that was like uh, probably a year ago that I had that stuff. Um, but it wasn't bad. The pumpkin porter was actually pretty good. So uh, no, actually, you know what it is? Is a pumpkin ESB. It's not a porter. It's an ESB. It says on the thing, the porter though. Oh uh, really? Yeah. I thought it was a pu- called pumpkin. I thought it was a pumpkin ESB. No, because no, who the hell except like your yeah, I know spe- very specific yeah. craft beer drinkers who know what especially bitter is. Yeah. So I don't know. I thought it was ESB, but maybe not. It uh, probably tastes like one. But it probably then, does. Yeah. yeah. Um, today, uh, Martin brought over a special treat for us, and unlike last week, which was the Guinness, uh, Nitro Nitro IPA, IPA, this one's a lot better. Uh, this one is, it's made by Genesee, um, I don't know if anybody in, uh, you know, listening to this would know Jenny, probably, I mean, they're they're pretty nationally brewed. Yeah, I think last time I checked, like, the eighth biggest brewer in the... America. They're definitely the biggest yeah. in New York. So they probably have Jenny around. It's probably your. I know some states don't get them. Like it's like it's not a lo- as local. Yeah. Like it's, it is across. State. It is across like the nation, but it's like some states just you know don't yeah. carry. I think like 
for some reason, like Florida, you can get Jenny, but like Louisiana doesn't. Hmm. From what I've seen, yeah, like that's from, weird. Some from what I've seen from beer reviews online, probably stuff, just depends on you know the state by state. Yeah. But I brought their uh, brew house, which is like their specialty selection. They're like kind of like their main line craft section, which goes with their Dundee line, which is kind of more of a craft beer line. Yeah. Um, cause they recently, about two years ago, maybe even three years ago, they opened up a uh, brew house in Rochester, which is where they're based, where they kind of are more experimenting with different styles of beer. And one of the ones that they released to the public in their pilot batch series is, uh, Imperial Black IPA, which is, uh, kind of a pretty hefty, uh, beer if you're, not a, cra- if you're not a craft beer drinker. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, it's got a nice dark bitterness to it on the front with all the malts very malty. very malty really it's actually i th- i think they malted it more than they hopped it to be honest with you because the, the it definitely doesn't it, definitely doesn't taste as hoppy as you would expect from an ipa and and an, an imperial, imperial ipa, IPA. I, well you know i don't really know what they're calling the imperial part of it i don't know if they're calling it like an imperial stout sort of thing or if they do mean that it's an ipa imperial IPA. well it's it's imperial because it does have eight percent alcohol uh, okay so that's why because mm. it's got that higher alcohol content but I actually like it a lot. Um, it's not my favorite black IPA out there, but no. I do I do like it a lot for the fact that the alcohol is you can't at eight percent you can't really taste it. Which it's is, not as heavy as what it could be. Yeah, which is a good, very good thing. Yeah, and I think and I also like it because it's. I mean, even though I do like hoppy IPAs, I like it that's not too hoppy. And it's more malty and kind of is more like a porter in a sense than a traditional black IPA, which, you know, it's supposed to be a, yeah. a black IPA. It's like a mix between a porter and a IPA. Yeah. But I do like the fact that it's not so uh, hoppy because I think too many craft breweries out there today have gone apeshit over IPAs, you know, pumping out, you know, different, like, how hoppy can we get it? What color IPA can we make? Yeah. <laughs> you know, red, white, black, you know. It's getting absurd to the point. You know, I understand that it's a big part of uh, craft beer sales mm-hmm. that drives them is their IPAs but to me it's just because we, we've been you know we've been drinking craft beer since you know we turned both turned 21 so it's kind of like we're both IPA'd out like we yeah. want something different we want something new yeah I'd like to see more craft breweries pump out like you know something different like a cream ale mm-hmm. which you know all that really makes cream ales around here is Browns and Jenny makes a cream ale yeah so, you know, I, I just want more variety because I'm, I'm, I personally am IPA now. I have to be very in the mood to mm-hmm. wanna. Yeah, no, I do. To drink I, one. I, I, I like them, but yeah, it, de- it really depends on what kind of mood I'm in before I, you know, if I want to get into it or not. So, um, probably we should get into uh, covering covering some of the the movies that we have on on tap for today um it's a little like i said it's a little different format we're going to be jumping jumping around and trying to cover uh, about 15 that we came up with on our list of of what we really enjoy to watch for halloween um, i think some of them we'll revisit later on more probably more in depth yeah but this is more like a list of, of kind of like a Things you should watch. On you should, yeah, inspirational things for Halloween. Things that really get to the heart of, of what Halloween is. And the first one, I guess, that we should start out with, it just makes sense, is the original Halloween. We kind of said that we weren't going to cover Halloween because what's there to say? 
Um, but we might as well include it because it is, you know, the most important, one of the most important Halloween movies that's out there. It has it right in the title. So if anybody's questioning, yeah, you know, there, there's no, there's no, you can't really say, no, I don't really think Halloween's like an important Halloween movie because it has it in the fucking title. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, so I, how long has it been since you've seen Halloween? Um, probably about two years. Yeah. I saw it probably two years, two years back at AMC. Mm-hmm. I try to watch it every year for Halloween. I, I, I do too. It's one of the, mo- one of the few movies I try to watch like every year. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it always holds up in my opinion. It does. And I, I haven't gotten to it this year. I, I will admit, I haven't been watching a lot of horror movies this year for Halloween. I've been trying to watch specials instead because Sometimes when I watch horror movies for Halloween, it doesn't feel different, doesn't feel special. I watch horror movies, like, literally every day. I watch, like, a movie, a horror movie a day. So, for me to, like, continue that tradition for the Halloween season doesn't really feel that different to me. So, instead, I've been kind of trying to watch Halloween specials, <laughs> even the ones that are, like, old, older classic Halloween episodes. Uh, not too long ago, I watched the Ellen special. The Ellen Halloween special. I don't know if you remember her TV show, I Ellen. I don't. I do not. not. Not like the Ellen show like she has mm-hmm. on syndicated television, but Ellen. It was like a, a sitcom, probably. I think it was a multi-camera sitcom. Um, don't actually, remember it might Ellen. have been a single camera. I don't know. I can't remember even. But um, yeah, we watched that because it was readily available on YouTube. So I've been watching that. haven't really had a chance to watch Halloween. I really want to get to it at some point before Halloween on, on uh, Saturday. So... Um, but I, I can watch it every year and really have no problems, like, just getting straight into it. It, it always engages me. I'm always very excited to watch it because, for one thing, I just love the atmosphere of it. Not just because it's tense with Michael Myers stalking, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis or anything like that, but that there's just so much Halloween atmosphere within it. They, John Carpenter really did a good job of capturing the spirit of the holiday i think in his film cinematography and everything no i definitely agree i think one of the strong points of this film compared to like a lot of slasher films that would follow suit afterwards is the acting in it is superb mm-hmm. all around jamie lee curtis is fantastic he's in great it. yeah um really helped it really helped to yeah. kickstart her career not you know yeah being in general first. just not just for for horror movies, which she did do a lot of at that time, um, really branching, you know, but branching out into other areas of, of the genre as well. And it's great to see her return to that with Scream Queens, mm-hmm. the TV show uh, that's on right now, because a lot of uh, horror genre actors as soon as they get on to, as soon as they get out, they're like, you know, it's like I never did that shit. You know, yeah, it's kind yeah. it's kind of seen as a blemish yeah. on their career. It's I know. Not, you know, even if you're watching things like the Scream Factory or you know Blue Underground or um, any of those special features that when they you know re-release films, you'll see that the big names that were in that film are really not interested in coming back to do anything like commentaries. Well, do you or, think? Yeah, I was gonna say, do you think Paul Rudd wants to come back and comment? You know, honestly, I really do. Actually, I I would not be surprised if he would be interested in commentary. I, I, I mean, it would be interesting because I mean, I think he seems like a laid back guy. I that, think so. That I, he would come back and do a commentary on Halloween Six, but at the same time, it's like you see all the co- like big comedies he's been in, especially the Judd Apatow ones. He's made enough money, like where he can be like, yeah, I never did that. Shit. You know, you know. Yeah, I you know I. If it were me, and I obviously I'm different, I don't know how, how much Paul Rudd loves 
horror movies. But if it were me, I definitely would be interested in coming back. And you do see that for some of the other actors. I mean, I'm not saying everybody doesn't want to come back and do a, a special feature or an interview about it. Um, but more likely than not, the bigger names you're just not going to see come back for, for interviews. Um, I brought it up in this in the uh, Wes Craven retrospective that we did back in episode four. Um, and, 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 you know, Johnny Depp really got his start doing uh, um, A Nightmare on Elm Street for Wes Craven. And I was really concerned that we weren't going to see any sort of public um, statement about his uh, Wes Craven's death. And I thankfully, Johnny Depp did... Took him like a week and a it half. It did. It so. took him a lot. Took him a while, but I still give give him credit for it. That he, he did credit Wes Craven for helping to start his career. So, um, you know, I was hard on Johnny Depp at that point, but I was really glad to see that he did come out and make a statement about it. But you know, that's surprising to me because honestly, I didn't really expect him to. And you know, you'll find that a lot. And I, I, we've gotten kind of off topic, but in a roundabout way, I'm coming back to Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> In Scream Queens, really hearkening back to her, all of her Scream, you know, Scream Queen moments in film, in horror film, um, Halloween being one of the first, and uh, obviously one of the best for the slasher genre as a whole. I actually think it's my favorite slasher <laughs> film. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's because when <clears throat> you think of like slasher films, especially as like sequel, because they pump out sequels mm-hmm. left and right. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. Like Halloween. The first film is not gory at all. It's actually really subtle in how it handles its violence. It's mm-hmm. very kind of cut away off screen. You don't really get to see it. Oh, yeah. It's... Which is what a lot of, at least in my opinion, what a lot of slasher films kind of start off with, but they kind of recognize it's the kills that kind of people get people excited and scared, so they have to always crank it up a notch. You see, yeah, not just you... in the Halloween franchise, but like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I would say Friday the 13th is the worst offender in that regard. And, but actually, you know what? Halloween is a pretty, you know, that's, it gets pretty gory as it goes along as well. Once you hit to like Halloween Resurrection and stuff, then it's yeah. just gore for gore's sake. Really, they were just piling it on. Well, I, I I give credit to John Carpenter and making it very minimalistic in that because it's what what you don't. This is why, when it comes to horror films, at least for me, I think especially today, they show too much. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it scary. It just makes it kind of cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. What makes Halloween a more scarier and more atmospheric film is what you don't see. Leaving it up to the audience's imagination is a lot more impactful than just showing outright somebody's head getting cut off mm-hmm. or a lot of gore and blood. If you leave it up to my imagination, it can go into, you know, <laughs> much darker places than yeah. what the film might have intended. And that's what's great about this film is the atmosphere and how it handles that kind of violence and the stalking. It leaves it up to your imagination. Like, it gives you wiggle room to imagine what's going on yeah. and what happened. No, I agree. I think some people now will find Halloween to be uh, a slow film. I think they'll find it very slow, very plodding. Um, and that's something that we don't really see that often in, in newer horror films. There's a lot of flashy editing. There's a lot of cutaways really quick. You've seen, you know, you know trailers for horror films. And not even horror films, but action films. They're just it, like quick, they're ter- shitty cuts. They're, t- they're terrible. I hate 
trailers these, this is getting off top but like trailers these days piss me off because it's just quick it's you know jump cut quick jump cut rant hey, alert rant know, alert yeah fade, fade to black you yeah. know music like you know cue like Hans Zimmer style music cue the industrial uh, the you know industrial machine simmer <laughs> uh, yeah like, like it's it's been done to death. Yeah. It's annoying. I mean, granted, would I want them to go back to like a '70s style where it's like a three-minute-long trailer <laughs> and they reveal like the entire plot to you while you're watching the tra- trailer? No, but I think now they're too kind of uncouth about it. like you know like me, me, and they're just constantly cut like you know doing quick cuts and the trailers don't really have any flow. It doesn't get me excited to see a film. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, st- I would like to see the some parts of like the older trailers come back. Like radio trailers were kind of cool sometimes. You know, you'd have like in the seventies, um, you'd have like some of those exploitation films that were coming out and be like, he saw a prostitute. He knew she was the one. <laughs> he brought her home, and he murdered. It's like, you know, you just have that, I mean, like... I mean, I, yeah, no, I agree. I think that it'd be cooler, but, I mean, at the same at the same time, state of today's trailers, yeah, terrible. I agree. They, like, and that's why, for the most part, I try to... If I'm interested in a... Like, if I see a title of a film or a franchise I'm kind of interested in... Keep away. I keep away and try to go into blind. Like, kind of getting a little off topic. Like, the, the new Bond film that comes out November 6th, Spectre. I can't wait to see it. I think it's going to be amazing. You stayed away from the trailers. I haven't. I've seen one trailer. And that's it. I don't want. I don't want it spoiled. Yeah. I don't want anything like leaked to me. I don't want it like ruined by the trailer. Same thing with the new Star Wars film. Yeah. I haven't seen like the new trailer and stuff, or like followed any like what's going on behind the scenes stuff, because I don't want it ruined. Yeah. I want to go in as as fresh as fresh as possible. You just got out of the laundry. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. I I try to stay away from trailers as well. Just. Just for the fact that sometimes they do, you know, you get on the hype train, they skew how you review things, they skew, you know, uh, like with It Follows and The Babadook, I really stayed away from it, all that stuff until I saw them. Uh, New Splash, I didn't like It Follows that much. People people say that it's like the modern day John Carpenter Halloween, but I didn't like it very much. Um, well, I was going to say, like, like um, if I went into, when we went to go see the remake of Evil Dead and mm-hmm. Godzilla... If I probably saw the trailers and stuff and followed that stuff, I probably would have been greatly disappointed. Well, it's interesting. And, yeah, you brought and, up and, Godzilla. And going in, you know, and after leaving the remake of Evil Dead, I wasn't pissed. It's one of the few remakes of modern day that haven't pissed me off. Mm-hmm. I actually thought it was pretty well pretty well done, actually. Yeah. And Godzilla, I loved. There was, like, only one major flaw in that film, but, like, I stayed away from it. I'm like, oh, God, they're make, doing a remake of Godzilla? kind of hyped up about that i don't want to go in super hyped and leave the film going like man i'm fucking pissed yeah yeah i hear you i think we'd be remiss before we like uh, move on a little yeah bit. we're not it's, moving on yeah we can't move on yeah from how is we gotta talk about the great and uh late donald pleasant i'm glad you brought that up because i was gonna bring that up if we still got off on our <laughs> tangents about trailers and godzilla and it follows so um yes donald pleasant's uh, a pleasant surprised to see in this film he's great uh you know he's he had done a lot of work before this Uh, most most notably for me and i think not like a lot of people probably listening to the podcast but he's most notably remembered by me as ernst stavro blofeld from the james bond franchise as the first blofeld 
in You Only Live Twice, mm -hmm. who is uh, parodied in uh, the Austin Powers series by Dr. Evil. Yeah. When they did Dr. Evil, the blow fell that they're parodying is uh, Donald Pleasant's, Donald Pleasant's yeah. blowfield instead of Telly Savalas or uh, yeah. Charles Gray, who, if you didn't know, is also the guy from Rocky Horror Picture Show doing the, it's just a jump to the left. <laughs> well, he's a great genre actor. But he's also a great actor in general. You can't, you know, he, there's no sense in limiting him to just genre fare. He's great in, in this one. He's, you know, he's great in all the films that he starred in for John Carpenter. I think John Carpenter really knew how to use him. I think one of the great, I think because he's a veteran, by this point, veteran actor, I think being kind of from that old school, you can take him from any film, any budget, any type of character, and he knows how to, like, adapt his craft and make it work. Yeah. I don't think you could, like, and he, for instance, kind of going back and a little off topic to, like, You Only Live Twice as Blofeld, he's only in the film for about 10, 15 minutes. Yet he's the main villain, and he's what people remember the most about that film, and he's one of the most memorable villains in Bond. Yeah. Because of that, because he knew how to act, act the part. Yeah. And I think now coming into Halloween, a low-budget film... Yeah. And being in like the spotlight as Doctor Loomis, he knows how to adapt and be, you know, play the role accordingly, and also be very memorable. And I think that's kind of a lost art for actors these days. If most actors got, you know, mm -hmm. switched from what they're usually doing, or like from one type type of budget to another, if they're out of their, like their normal comfort zone, they don't know, really know how to adapt uh -huh. and play like certain parts accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, we got a lot to cover, so I want to. I, I I don't. I want to. Don't want to spend a ton of time on Halloween because you know everybody knows what kind of great film it is. We we all know that it, it's really great, but we haven't really talked about Michael Myers in Halloween yet. Uh, arguably the the biggest character, one of the biggest characters in horror history. Um, how did you feel when you first saw Michael Myers? I he's definitely scary. Yeah. Um, I think his presence and the fact that he's just, you know, the way he's, especially in the first film, the way he stalks. Just quiet, si quiet silent, and, just watching from yeah. afar. And how, for the most part, it's, you know, very limited, you get to see of him. It's very, you know, if you, when he's stalking Jamie Lee Curtis, like in the first part of the film, it's, you know, quick cuts. You see mm -hmm. him for a second and then it cuts away. It's very quick and very deliberate and builds up to him coming and then starting his massacre compared to where in the Rob Zombie remake it's you get to see his whole life fucking story <laughs> and this white trash whorehouse of a life yeah. and then he's like oh you see him in the you know in the insane asylum smashing people's head and then you know, oh he finds Ken Forey and smashes his head in and gets his jumpsuit and all this other crap like yeah. it's not scary yeah I think the way I think basically in this movie, build him up and keep him kind of limited there, until the very end is very, very effective. Because we really don't know why he's stalking at this point. He's just an escaped insane asylum. That's all we really know. That's that's all we get. And so there's that lack of backstory that makes him really scary because this is uh, small town USA. This isn't, you know, big city. It's... And I think that's where, like, the mistake is made between this film and the remake. I think the remake, it's like, 
they tried to make him sympathetic. Like, oh, well, yeah, he's a serial killer, but he came from a look white, his, white trash his, uh, background. And he right. got, it's like, who gives a shit? Right. I'm not trying to sound like an asshole here, but it's like, the, as, as a horror film, it's not going to make you watch that film. Like, well, that makes it scary. It doesn't. No, I, like I said, if yeah. you the more you leave up to the audience's imagination, the more effective the film is going to be and like how it scares. Yep. And I think the fact that the first film, that all they reveal is, as a kid, he killed his sister, and that's it. And then for the rest of the film, you just see him quietly stalking Lori until the very end, basically, mm-hmm. is what makes it scary. It's not, you know going through hoops to try to make him a sympathetic character or explain where he's coming from. The yeah. less you know, the better off you are. The first scene is masterful. It's not the first time that we've seen a first-person shot of a stalking sequence in a murder. Um, it's not, you know, it's not particularly meant to be scary in that there's jump scares. It's tense because of the way that we're shown it quickly as we, you know, not and only... the score as well. In the score, uh, it, the suspense of knowing that this is a family member, basically. All of this c- kind of comes into play when we are when we first start the film. And then that, that slow zoom in the, you know, before the, the credit sequence there where we're just zooming out to see... Um, Michael Myers standing with a knife, his parents just distraught at coming home to him like that. It's just, it's just great. It really sets the mood for what's to come later on. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that's really important. Unlike Rob Zombies, where you just get thrown exposition at you about what Michael Myers' past previous life was, that is a one instance that just really cements his persona. Yeah, and that's it. That's all you get, and that's all you need. You don't need anything else. That's you're just given that, and you're you're good to just. I mean, he's scarier that way. Yeah, no, I I, I definitely agree. I, like I said, yeah, can't really I, you know, expand upon it much better. It's, yeah, it's just a. It's like it's a, I said, the less you know, yep, the more impactful it is. And then we'll move right on to um, Halloween two because. Really, they're a great one-two punch. I think one of my one, favorite. One of the one of the very few in the horror film, not just slasher film, but horror film genre, where the sequel is just as good as the first one. Yeah, and I, which which I still don't understand how this film is not as widely regarded as the first one. I I think that, I mean, there's definitely a few different touches in Halloween 2 that make it slightly different from the first one. I think one of those is the addition of a little bit more goofiness. Um, with gore. Bit, yeah, a little bit more gore, a little bit more goofiness. Um, the goofiness really comes into play with like the with all the hospital attendants. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just slightly more goofy, slightly more... Um, ridiculous than the characters that are in the first film but at the same time we're getting the first film had its goofy moments as well um you know and i think that was one of john carpenter and deborah hill's touches that they they wanted it to be slightly funny and and comedic in parts and that made it all the more suspenseful when we actually do see these people get murdered by michael myers um and to be honest with you in halloween 2 um 
there's really all the people that are targeted are just really in the way of, of him. Yeah, of him getting to Lori. There's really you know it, it that kind of makes it worse. In the first film, there's a few people that are murdered just because they're in his way, but not so many. There's really not that many kills in the first Halloween film. Well, I mean, I I agree that like yeah, those you can see as flaws, but I think the fact the fact alone that it picks up right perfectly. Right after Halloween one, perfectly. Which the ending of Halloween one is great when Loomis shoots Michael and he falls off the house and you're like, oh, he's got to be dead, and then his body's gone. Yeah. And the fact that the film picks right up after that and continues on is what makes it a great film. It's a good sting. It, it's okay. a great, it's a great follow up. It's yeah. not, you know, it's still following the same plot. I mean, yeah, it is. Is it a little bit more goofy and stuff? Yeah. But what slasher film? Doesn't get doesn't get goofier and goofier by the film. Yeah, you can look perfectly at the Friday the Thirteenth series and see how like the first one's kind of a little bit more serious, and as each film gets more and more on, it's campier and campier and parody of parody of self parody of parody. You know, so I mean, it it, it it is a flaw, but at the same time, it's not it's not anything that's going to be yeah that really, damning to it. Yeah. Um, I still like the score. Slightly different. I do like how the film opens, too, how it's very similar to the first film with the Jack Lantern and the oh, title yeah. sequence. I, I love yeah. the... I mean, I'll say I love the title sequences in almost every Halloween. I mean, as you go on, as you get to the sequels that people really didn't give a shit about besides well, like Halloween, what they were Halloween 4 is just, you know, kind of like there's a feel in the bar. Yeah. Like, like, Halloween 4. Yeah. Curse of Michael Myers. And it doesn't have, like, you know, like, yeah, the curse curse is six. By the way, oh whatever. But yeah, return of my. I'm sorry, return of Michael. But Myers. I know what you mean. Um, yeah, as you get further on, people start giving a shit about the openings and stuff like that. But yeah, the the, the openings to like one, two, three, are really great. I I definitely you know I love those. Um, yeah, I just have a a strong love for Halloween too. Um, it's such a great Halloween movie. Um. I, I like the hospital setting a lot. Um, that's something that really, well, now in my occupation, it really kind of stands out to me because I work in a hospital setting. So um, that kind of thing definitely sticks because on a deserted night, like Halloween night in a hospital, you really, you don't, you're not going to, you know, you're thinking of it as a, a graveyard shift type of situation. And um, I think that really makes it kind of spooky and atmospheric. John Carpenter did a really good job of writing that with Deborah Hill um, and, and creating that kind of suspense with the setting itself. And I think Rick Rosenthal as a director really hammers that home with all of the, the cinematography that he shoots of like a kind of deserted hallways and darkened hallways. That, that kind of thing really, I think, stands out about Halloween 2. Um, not just because of all of the the, the more the gorier effects that they they pull for this one, but also because of the the atmospheric way that they um, present it. And really, Halloween two doesn't let up that much at all. There's there's a consistent feeling of uh, the stalking that's going on with Lori and, and Michael, and we know that Lori, in her present condition, is actually really um, vulnerable more so than she was in the first film. So having that as well is really kind of a, 
um, even scarier because we know that she's even more vulnerable laying in a hospital bed that, uh, with really no one to protect her than um, she was in the first film where she had her own faculties uh, as well. So I, I really like that um, they kind of incorporated the hospital setting. Um, they made Lori a bit more vulnerable than she was in the first film so that we're really, you know, rooting for her and hoping that she pulls through. And um, at the same time, with her... Um, already making it through the first film and the in the second film picking off picking up right where the the first one left off the viewer is most likely coming into it knowing what happened in the first film knowing about all of those events and what kind of person or entity Michael Myers is and then knowing the type of things that he can do uh so i think that all makes it you know and that's part of halloween one's um success is that it can lead right into a second film that's just as successful um and is a really fun film to watch where i think halloween the first film is um it is slower it's slower paced um so it's definitely a tougher watch but halloween 2 is just really fun i think to watch i think it's it's more fun than the first film not saying that it's you know that the first film's not good and it is slightly fun but i think that it's it's just um a different style than halloween 2 it's not i'm not saying it's particularly a better film but it's it's an easier watch Mm -hmm. because you can you can tune out a little bit more than yeah say the first film yeah i've always just gotten the feeling that halloween 2 is is just a really fun film. There's just a lot of stuff in it that's, uh, like I was saying before, the the hospital scenes with like long deserted hallways. I find are really fun because it has that haunted house feeling to it. You just never know what's going to be around the corner. Um, there's also the the hot tub scene, which is just you know that's that's like a prelude to Final Destination or something like that. And you know they just kind of run, John Carpenter just kind of runs with it. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how much more time you want to spend on Halloween 2, um, but just to say that it really is, um, a fun film, and I think that that one-two punch of both films together, like, if you screen them together, which I think, which I think they should do more often, which which they don't, like, I know AMC, like, you know, with their Halloween films, they're like the only, one of the few stations that'll know that'll play Halloween too. Yeah, but well, I think if you're gonna play Halloween on TV, you might as well hit this. Play the second one as well because well, it's it's like I said it's the fact that it picks up right after the first one. Yeah, and continues on. It's got you know good acting again by Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance. Yep, it's atmospheric. It's you know. Campy, but not as you know, terribly campy. It it's definitely, I think, you know, yeah, a great film to watch. And it, like the fact that like uh, it only makes it even better that it picks up right after. And yeah, it's funny that you mentioned AMC playing them because um, AMC is playing Halloween one tomorrow, and Halloween two is not playing tomorrow. So yeah, you're right. They're not. I don't believe that they're showing them together, and they really should. I mean, it's a great double feature sort of thing. I think that it really should be like a you know a double feature that they they um, play more often. Yeah, for Halloween at least. Um, one of the more the black sheep of the Halloween genre, besides later films, sequels in the genre, 
is Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And I'll be honest, for a long time, I was not a huge fan of Halloween 3. I did not like that it did not have Mac Michael Myers in it. Um, I was, you know, I was confused as to why, and this was before I did research, obviously. I was confused as to why they just would choose to take the first two films and kind of branch off of them and not include something that, you know, worked so well. Um, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, uh, for a long time was a film that I often overlooked. I have a special place in my heart for Halloween 4 and 5. Um, I used to catch those why? all the time. Why? We don't know. All the time on AMC, and I don't know why. They're not particularly good films, but I do love them all the same. But um, Halloween 3, when I watched it probably a few years ago when I did it for Halloween 15, um, I had a special... Actually, I, I was surprised that when I watched it, I was... So, you know, I, I couldn't believe that it was actually that good. Um, I, th I think um, people who have seen the film and don't like it are people who saw the film when they were young, were pissed off Michael Myers wasn't in the film, and have written it off ever since. I think, I think if you watched it now, like as an adult, if more people watched it now, they would enjoy it for what it is. Yes, Michael Myers is in the film, but the anthology idea of it, I think, is a great idea. Especially with the films that would come out a couple of years later, like the Creep Show films. Mm -hmm. It fit. It would have been a cool idea instead oh, of constantly that's... having something new tying into the idea of Halloween instead of. Oh, the slashes, man! Yeah. The slashes, you know. switching up the, the mythology. Yeah, is I think. Yeah, you're right. It's a really great idea. I wish there was um, something that did that because it would be really cool to see a film based on Halloween, which, let's be honest, there's not that many films based on Halloween that are really good. We have the, the Halloween series, we have Trick or Treat, and we have the new new uh, anthology series that just came out, Tales of Halloween. But other than that, there's I can't think of very many more that are you know, adult films that are set on Halloween that are actually good movies. I, I, you know, I'm, and that's, that's unfortunate because horror movies don't often equate to Halloween. There's something missing. You know, you can watch a horror movie that's not set around Halloween and it just feels like a regular horror movie. But having that Halloween setting, I think really makes it special when you do watch it at the Halloween uh, mm. During the holiday, I think there's something about it that just makes you don't it watch you magical. Don't, let's say you don't you don't watch films that are you know Christmas films that don't take place around, around that don't take place around yeah. Christmas and yeah and you don't watch you know you're not watching Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer outside of Christmas. You're watching it because it's Christmas time. Unless it's July, oh, and you got yeah. Christmas in July. Yeah, that, well, but I mean, yeah, you're you're right. It's most horror films don't even take place around Halloween. They're yeah. just scary, and then they're equated to the Halloween holiday because, yeah. oh, it's supposed to be scary. Yeah. And I would love to see something along the lines of Halloween 3 Season of the Witch that did reject the the Michael Myers formula and moved on to a different sort of, you know, dynamic that happens during Halloween. Um it's not like Halloween 4 and everything after that was cool yeah. to begin with anyway. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but 
one thing that I do really love about Season of the Witch is its soundtrack. Um, it's got a great 80s synth score to it that's very much rooted in the robotics of its theme. Um, it's, it's, the synth is very, um, like industrialized. It's, it's, you know, in the film is about mass production of masks Mm. for the holiday. Um, and so, and I really like that the the whole idea of it kind of sounds, and there's robots in it too. I like the idea of the, the themes, uh, really matching what the film has um, as a plot. It does a really great job of that. I I try to listen to it every year on Spotify because it's up there on Spotify. You can listen to the soundtrack. And we also got the really great um, Countdown to Halloween commercial, which uh, we featured the most, in the beginning. Probably the most memorable part of the film, as you know. Yeah. And what are we, what are we at today? Four more days till Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. So, um, I think, you like, now, you can't get through a Halloween season without seeing somebody post that meme on social media. There's and no- now, I, I, I think it's kind of funny, too, that, kind of going back to talking about films getting played on TV, this is completely skipped over. Yeah, I mean, it's, it does it's, get some, some plays on AMC at times, but it's base. it's, and you're right, it's, it's the black sheep, it's the bastard child that yeah. people want to forget and the best I can kind of equate this film to for at least me and kind of you know going back being a Bond film fan is this reminds me of like On Her Majesty's Secret Service the first film in the Bond franchise that doesn't star Sean Connery it stars George Lazenby and people were nowadays are kind of turned off by that like oh he's you know not a great actor which is not a great actor but it's not a Bond film it's not good and I thought that you know, as a kid growing up, when I the few times that they played that on Spike during their Bond marathons, mm-hmm. that you know, oh, it's not a good film. And now, as an adult, and I watch it and see the story, the action, and everything going on in it, to me, it's one of my favorite films. It's actually like my second favorite Bond film. Yep. And the same kind of applies for Halloween Three. I think when I first saw it when I was yo- like younger, it didn't make much sense to me. It's mm-hmm. like, where's Michael Myers? What the hell's going on? This is stupid. And you just kind of write it off. Like, there's no Michael Myers. Here goes, this film sucks. Yeah. And now that I'm older and I watch, I can appreciate it more. I'd actually probably say, behind Halloween 1 and 2, it's probably my third favorite Halloween film. Because it's not bad. It's mm-hmm. actually an enjoyable watch. If you take out the fact that they were going in a different direction, they weren't going to do Michael Myers. It's supposed to become an anthology series. You can enjoy the film for what it was. If you renamed it something else that had nothing to do with the Halloween Franchise. If yeah. you just named it the Season of the Witch, I think it probably would have been a much more well-accepted film. I love Tom Atkins in it. He's a great genre actor as well. Tons of stuff with John Carpenter. Um, I, I, you know, you can't go wrong with him, having him in it, and I think he's a really great lead character. Um, Stacy Nelkin as well, being you know his his love interest in that, really works. I think, um, you know, just. The whole thing for me is, again, really nostalgic. Um, I love all of the Halloween atmospherics in it. Um, and this one, you know, arguably has more than, like, Halloween 2. Because Halloween 2 set in a hospital. does have its decorations in the hospital itself. But you're not seeing a lot of that outside world 
uh, in Halloween 2, whereas in Halloween 3, you're getting all of that stuff, all the lead up to Halloween, you're seeing all the decorations, you're seeing the kids in masks, it's just very much um, a Halloween movie all around. Yeah, it's basically by the time you get to Halloween 2, it's late at night of Halloween. It's already, like, it's, 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 over it's already come and gone, yeah, basically. basically. It's like November 1st yeah. for, for Halloween 2. Halloween 3 is, you know, there's a lead up to it, and you, you get those countdown to Halloween commercials uh, throughout that, you know, tells you how close are we. It's kind of like, you know, when I was a kid, or not not even when I was a kid, like now, <laughs> still counting down to Halloween, like how many days are there? Well, you don't even get that anymore on television now, because by now we already have, like, countdowns to Christmas. Like, it's only, you know. Yeah. Eight little, weeks away. Just, that's bullshit. I do love Christmas, so I can't complain about that either. Well, so I, I don't. I so. love Christmas. I love Christmas horror. I love, you know, so. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I just love that nostalgia factor in there as well. And, uh, you know, I think that anybody who says that they flat out really dislike Halloween 3, I think you really need to revisit it. And I think you try you try really hard. Go in with an open mind. To, to just knock away that Michael Myers aspect of it that it should be mimic. You know, it should be doing the same things as Halloween 1 and 2. Well, my advice is go in with an open mind and look at it this way. It cannot be any worse than 4, 5, 6, H2O, Resurrection. Yeah. Because to be honest with you, it's not. It's you know, No, no, no. It's, you know... It has a 4.5 rating on IMDb, but I really think that's unfair. I think that's well, did you super see, unfair. Did you see the Halloween's original rating? Yeah, no, I didn't see what it, it was. It was only like a 7.5, 7.9. Yeah, 7. And, uh, which, which is, you know, to me, just ass, that's ass not. That's yeah, ridiculous. and Halloween 2 is 6.5. So, But, I mean, you can't really go by IMDb's ratings. But, um, I mean, you know, I, I would definitely recommend revisiting it. And there's been a lot of essays about people revisiting it, finding out. Hey, I actually really like it. it. Taken on its own, it's a really good film. Um, and I think you, what you should try to do is imagine a reality where Halloween 4, 5, 6 down the line did not exist. You were moving on from Halloween 2 with a fresh start, wanting an, an, an anthology series. Um, and you were given Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and take it from there. You know, and, and imagine what it could have been like. What, what could have happened? What could, ideas could they have come up with that kind of revolve around Halloween? Mm -hmm. That, you know. I mean, I think it. They it's could have, they it's could, a topic worth revisiting. They I could think. have, like I said, they could have done quite well because the Creepshow films are pretty damn enjoyable. Yep. And, uh, you know, the anthology series really blossomed. Halloween radio mm, comes in more. A few years after Halloween 3 season, which we got, you know, in the 80s, we got some of the TV anthology series. Tales from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt was later in the 90s, getting into the 90s. Um, so, they really, the anthology series, they really started to blossom. And, you know, I think Halloween really could have done something really good with that genre had it been given the chance to. To spook the kids without the gore. Um, I think. Are you good moving on? Yeah. Should we move on to, because uh, we, we are at the 47 minute mark and we've done three films so far. So we got we, we to gotta crack down here, shut our traps and kind of get going on the other 12 that we have to cover still. Um, well, I think moving on, sticking with that Halloween theme of movies is uh, covering Trick or Treat. You've never seen it. Never seen that it. That is a travesty. That is... <laughs> 
fucking terrible. I cannot <laughs> believe that you've never seen Trick or Treat because it has become, for many people, the staple Halloween movie to watch during the season. Is it, is it on Netflix? Um, I don't believe it's on Netflix, but I will. I, one of the channels, I want to say it's Chiller, but I don't know. They play a 24-hour marathon of Trick or Treat. Oh, on so Halloween. it's like a Christmas story. It's like a Christmas story now. It has become, thanks to Michael Doherty, the writer, director, the uh, the head honcho behind it, it has become the staple point for Halloween movies. I think maybe even more than Halloween itself. I think people run to Trick or Treat. I watch it every year. I've already watched it this year. I watched it early October. Um, it's just... I have, again... Th- I'm a really nostalgic person. I I stick with it. You know, I have a lot of nostalgia in me. Uh, when I now first that, started... Now, I was saying, now that we're getting older, it's uh, my birthday just passing. It's Yeah. yeah. Nostalgia's all we got. <laughs> when I first started blogging, this was back quite a ways when we still had to post everything on MySpace. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't that far back. But... <laughs> That's MySpace. <laughs> um... When I first started, and it was probably in my second year or so, I I would get things from, like, DC and Vertigo Comics. And right around the time Trick or Treat was releasing, um, which it got a straight-to-video release, unfortunately, for Michael Doherty, because he was really lobbying for a theatrical release. Um, right around that same time, um, I received the comic version of Trick or Treat, so the graphic novel version of Trick or Treat. Read it, loved it. Um, have fond memories of reading it in bed and in my dorm room with orange lights glowing, only being able to read by those orange lights. Um, so I have really fond memories of that. Saw the film, loved it. Um, been watching it every year since. It's just a really great film with four, It's since you haven't seen it, it's got four stories in it, so it's an anthology, but they all run together. They all come together into um, a whole. Um, so you'll see during the the film some of the other stories happening in the background Mm -hmm. of of the main story. And so that really makes it one of the best Halloween movies um, that I've seen. Not only all all the uh, stories center on Halloween? Mm -hmm. They all happen on the same night. Oh, good. Yeah. So it's all happening at the same time, basically, and it jumps back and forth in time to show each of those stories. Um, and they're all centralized around this kid, this pumpkin being named Sam, who really is the spirit of Halloween. So uh, one bitch puts out her jack-o'-lantern before Halloween's over, he comes and kills her. Um, <laughs> he's the spirit of Halloween, and... You know, you better make sure that you're celebrating it appropriately or else Sam's going to come for you. Um, obviously, Sam is coming from Samhain, which is Halloween's, the Halloween tradition. So, um, I just, you know, all the things that it does, it does really well. It, it tackles all the main themes of what Halloween is and what I think about uh, when I think Halloween. Um, and I really love it. I think that they want to do a trick-or-treat too, and I... I believe that's going to be very difficult because of how much praise Trick or Treat has received. Uh, Michael Doherty recently released, along with some other writers, a new graphic novel for Trick or Treat called Trick or Treat Days of the Dead. And while it's good, it definitely doesn't have the appeal that Trick or Treat has. For one thing, it occurs in different time periods, so it's not taking place on the same day. 
and all of the different traditions of the time periods play into it. It's very much a cultural thing. Um, it includes a lot, encompasses a lot of cultures in, in, into it. Um, and that's great, but I think that most people are going to find that it pales in comparison to what Michael Doherty did with the original Trick or Treat. And I honestly would rather see Michael Doherty move on and do his Krampus, which is coming out this November uh, for Christmas. It's a, a Christmas horror movie. Um, I'd rather see him move on to that than return to Trick or Treat 2 because I think that there's going to be... Obviously, people are going to be upset. There's just not going to be anything pleasing. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be almost impossible to please them now. Um, you know, now that it's... Uh, eight years after the first one released. I think it's going to be very difficult. That's, And I think that's all we really need to say about Trick or Treat. And most people who love Halloween, they've already seen Trick or Treat. Or, you know, they, they catch it every year. So um, there's no reason to really harp on why it's a great film. It's, you know, it encompasses everything about Halloween. And you should really see it. I don't know why you haven't yet. Uh, I will. I will loan you my DVD <laughs> if I have to. Um... All right, what else do we have on tap here? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. It, you know, I moving, moving away kind of from the it's it, a comedy. It's more of a comedy than a horror film, obviously. It is, and it's really not like particularly a Halloween film. But um, I would say that I have fond memories of what I think ever seeing Ghostbusters. I think anybody born in the eighties or nineties has pretty fond memories of Ghostbusters. It's a do you remember the first time you saw it? I had to be like five years old. I, I definitely remember and, because and the Slimer beginning scene in the library scared the shit know, out of you me. You know, actually, the film that I saw first was Ghostbusters 2 before Ghostbusters. Oh, okay. Because, because <clears throat> especially nowadays, they play Ghostbusters 2 on television yep. a hell of a lot more than they do than the original Ghostbusters. And that's how I because, you know, the films were both out of theaters by the time we were growing up. Mm-hmm. But they always play Ghostbusters two more than they play Ghostbusters. So I saw Ghostbusters two. I've seen Ghostbusters two more than I've seen Ghostbusters. But I remember seeing them both on television, watching them, and loving both of them, and finding them to be you know funny and hilarious. When I was a kid, scary for you know what they were going you know, was yeah. going on in the films. But now as an adult, or even funnier, because me and you both being big Bill Murray fans, yeah. Legend, and the film also has Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis. So. Oh, the late Harold Ramis, still upset about his death. Oh, everyone should be. Yeah, and uh, Sigourney Weaver, great in that. Why am I drawing? Shh, I don't know why. Who are you trying about. to? Who are you trying to think of here? Guy from Honey I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, Rick Moranis. Yeah, Rick Moranis. I don't know. I was yeah. drawing a blank on. Hilarious in it. Uh huh. Has a bit part in it. He's oh, yeah. Fucking hilarious, mm-hmm. but I think everybody at this point knows what Ghostbusters is all about. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say so. It's a legendary film. Yeah, and it's like I said, as you said too, it's hilarious. It's Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, both from SNL fame, and with Harold Ramis there too. Oh yeah, all they work together so well. I yeah, I, you know that's part of the reason why Ghostbusters is such an iconic film is that all, all of the team really works together well and they have a chemistry that I love. You, you know, you, you're getting that chemistry and it really helps the film, I think. Um, 
I used to have Ghostbusters toys when I was a kid. Oh, me too. Oh, yeah. Because that, that, that was at the time when the cartoon was airing. Yes. That's really... The the cartoon was the reason why the, the uh, action figures were released. I had... You know, I had their car. Which, it's funny because none of them look like any of them. No. Egon looks nothing No, Egon looks nothing like him. <laughs> like He's got this blonde, wavy hair instead of, you know, Harold Ramis's, you know, pompadour, which he was sporting at the time. I, um, but I, I had the car, I had all the guys, I would pretend I was busted ghosts all the time. You had the, did you have the, the plasma packet and all that? I think so. I think I did. I, you know, I sold all that stuff, and I'm really regretting that I sold it, like, I, when I was younger, because I had, I had Predator... I had alien stuff. I, you know, I had all the Batman Beyond stuff. I, I'm really sad now that I don't have all that stuff because, like, that would be so cool to have now that I'm 26 years old. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, um, I, you know, I, I would say that even though Ghostbusters really is not a Halloween film, it really. I think it touches on a lot of the concepts that make it feel like it is. One. Well, the fact that, you know, who who's the one to go around busting ghosts? That's right. As, as your job, I mean. <laughs> as your job, yeah. that's right. And I, and it does have a lot of memorable bits to it, like the Stave Puff Marshmallow Man. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows. I, I was walking uh, through Walmart the other day. They had a Stave Puff Marshmallow Man costume. Yep. 30 years 30 after years the later. film, and it's still... Still a big part. And kind of going off topic, like I think to Ghostbusters 2, like the main villain being Veagle, I think of his one assistant uh, that was worked at the museum trying to protect him. He reminds me kind of like a Bronson, Bronson Pink Show kind of character that you'd see in uh, Beverly Hills Cup. It's like, no, Veagle! Let's protect Veagle! It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's just a quirky comedy that it still holds up. And like I said, Dan Aykroyd's Kind of, he he plays kind of a straight man in both films. Uh-huh. Him and Harold Ramis are both kind of straight men to Bill Murray's quirky quirkiness. Yep. Um. Zoom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's. I can only imagine what it would have been like because we we were both born in '89. So. Oh yeah. We, this is this we is were, yeah, we, at least five years. Before yeah, but we were before born. us. I mean, I can only imagine what it would have been like being a kid seeing this for the first time yeah. in theaters. It would have been like an awesome experience. Oh, yeah. And it would have... All of these films yeah. that we're talking about would have been great to experience in, in the theaters. theaters. Yeah. And I, I just think that this film, for its comedy, it's hilarious. It's a comedy that still holds up today. Mm-hmm. It's very enjoyable. And it's an easy watch, too. It's not like... You're not, like, you're not sitting there looking at your watch like, when's this over? It is a it's, lengthy movie, though. It it is a long it film, is, yeah. but it's it's definitely an enjoyable watch, and, yeah. and I would definitely say like it's a great film to watch during the holidays because there's not a lot of entertaining films that I can at least think of that involve ghosts. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great. Uh, I agree. Moving on to uh, another horror comedy. This one mostly for uh, for children, but also I know many adults who cannot get through the Halloween holiday without watching definitely, it. Definitely from our generation. Oh yeah, definitely. This, this is our Hocus generation's Pocus. Ghostbuster, I guess. Hocus Pocus. Yeah. <laughs> well, I and I I blame ABC Family for some of that shit because they show it constantly. I mean, you look at their schedule. 
for 13 Nights of Halloween, it might as well be be called 13 Nights of Hocus Pocus. Because that's what it is. It's 13 Nights of Hocus Pocus, and we'll throw Harry Potter in there sometimes. I really, mean, though, they need to work on I do program. remember, I clearly remember being like four years old when this film came out, getting it on VHS and watching it with my family. Yeah. Hundreds of times. <laughs> Literally, seeing it a thousand times as a kid. Yeah. You know, as, as your wife Sarah would say, like, Hollywood! I'm surprised she didn't bust in through the door like the Kool-Aid man, <laughs> popping in, Hocus Pocus! Um, but I mean, it, it, like, to me, it is, I mean, it's not as funny, and it's not anywhere near as adult as Ghostbusters, but it's kind of our generation, because, you know, coming a little after the 80s. Not as adult as Ghostbusters, or... What we'll talk about later, Beetlejuice. But it's like yeah. our kind of our generation's Ghostbusters because it's that famous kind of adult, kind of kids film that most everybody you know that's from our generation has seen a thousand times and quote it mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's just I I really can't think of anybody that hasn't seen Hocus Pocus at least one time. I can't think of any. I'll be honest with you. I did not like Hocus Pocus that much, for uh, or at least I thought I didn't because I hadn't I hadn't really watched it a lot when I was a kid. I did I didn't really watch Hocus Pocus for whatever reason. Um, I was too busy watching Double Double Toil and Trouble with the uh, with Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. So, <laughs> um, but um, you know I for you know I want to say maybe last year is when I really sat down and I watched Hocus Pocus and I said. Okay, I do kind of like it. I, I, do, I do like it. So, uh, this year we watched it again, and it cemented it even more. Yes, I do like Hocus Pocus. It I is think a it, fun movie. It, it is definitely fun. I think um, this is one of the earlier roles I got to see Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker in. Yep. Not in her square peg role. Or, but <laughs> but it's, it's entertaining. I remember, actually remember being, like, this is kind of a little weird and off topic, but I remember being a kid... Seeing it because it is a Disney film mm-hmm. and hearing like "damn" and "hell" in there and being like, "Oh, I shouldn't watch it. I, I shouldn't be watching this. This is this is naughty, you know." Mm-hmm. And I I like the fact that as we were talking about Halloween three and Halloween one two, it takes place on Halloween. You get to see the trick or treating, and it's hilarious to kind of see the witches who have just been revived after three hundred years having to interact with modern society, and they see you know like. Running like, oh, you're giving out candy? Like, yeah, here you go, candy. And they see, like, one guy dressed up as Satan. Like, our dark master, yeah, Satan. Great. He's yeah. like, yeah, here you go, you know, ho, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that really gives Sarah Jessica Parker a chance to, like, run wild with that sort of airheaded she, role. Yeah, because she plays the, di- the ditzy airhead. Yeah. And she's totally... Plays it to a T. She's, you know... She's right on with that one. Totally just like, oh, my Wow, it's super amazing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, I think though that a lot of it is really it really comes down to the kids too. Um, we have like young kids really hitting the comedy notes. Um, I, you know, I think that, um, and the name is escaping me now of of the younger girl um, that uh, Danny. It is Danny. Um, Danny, as the younger girl, really hits her comedy notes dead on. I mean, she's very funny in that. Not a very, not a terrible child actor, which is a 
hard thing to come by. Yeah, no, I, I mean, she's, like, anytime she's forced to, like, hit the, you know, have any sort of sense of humor, even throwing out that uh, he's a virgin, or, you know, continually referencing, like, his, um, you know, his crush, um, I, I, she's just great in it. I think that she's, you know, she's a really, it was, yeah, it was Thora Birch that's, you know, a really great uh, part of the film and really adds a lot to it, I think. Um, but to be honest with you, you know, we get a lot of that sort of those um, younger actors that are really able to carry the film because honestly, it's a, you know, a young adult film. There's not, not too many adults in it. Uh, besides, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker, Bette Midler, and Kathleen and Jimmy as the witches, the rest of it is all on the kids to kind of um, to balance. It's sort of, in a way, uh, the precursor to uh, movies like Halloween Town for the Disney Channel, um, in that we we get the same sort of ideas that Halloween Town has, and I think that they really took a lot from Hocus Pocus and other films of that ilk. Um, so, you know, I think. You know, kids' films set around Halloween have Hocus Pocus to thank for their inspiration. Um, and if you haven't seen it before, then what, are you waiting? what are you waiting yeah. for? It's been out for 20, 22, years, fucking 22 years, and they're working on a sequel for it, which Bette Midler says is delayed because they can't find a virgin. So, <laughs> so uh, that was just, that was just today that she said that. So That might take... Forever, that might take forever. <laughs> Disney Channel seems to have a problem finding virgins. I don't know. So, um, bring back Miley. Yeah, bring back Miley. Um, moving on to something a little bit different. Something quite older than Hocus Pocus is Night of the Living Dead. Classic. Cool. Yeah, but I think <laughs> that is like when it pops into everybody's mind. Classic. Um, I remember a time when we both watched Night of the Living Dead for Halloween. It was a Halloween movie fest that we had mm-hmm. with Don't my <laughs> my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and my sister-in-law, who was my wife's sister. <laughs> always. Not at the time, but always. I don't know what I was trying to say there, but... And um, they did not like it so much. They did not like Night of the Living Dead. They thought it was... This is all we heard throughout the movie. This is slow. This, this is, is boring. boring. What's going to happen? Why, going? Is, why are the zombies not scary? This is wow. So, suffice to say, we were pretty pissed off because we're trying to watch a fucking horror movie, Night of the Living Dead. It's great. It's, you know. See it a thousand times. Yeah. Watched it. I love it. Uh, it's one of, you know, I'm not a huge fan of zombie films, to be honest with you. I'm not, I, th- I think that they're way overplayed. I, I you know, I well, will you try have, to... you have to think, think today now with, I think, the remake of Dawn of the Dead and now, so then you had the Left for Dead games mm-hmm. and the, uh, Dead Rising game and then you had, uh, The Walking, The Walking Fucking Dead come out <laughs> and ruin it for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... I'm just not a huge fan of the oh, genre yeah, and, because and, I think it's... I, for, to say, and I forgot 28 Days Later. 28 Days Later, yep. I, I, I try to stay away from zombie movies now because I just feel like I've seen most of what they can offer. And they don't change very much from movie to movie. I'm not that interested in the genre itself anyway because I feel like that social commentary that they 
can create <laughs> is is either overblown. Which, or, which we both agree with the Romero films. Then. Which we both agree with the Romero films. Um, and, I, you know, I'm just not a fan. I just, I can't get into it that much. So, for me to like something like Night of the Living Dead is, you know... I, mean, I think I think Night of, the Living, Night of the Living Dead works as a great film is because it is simplistic... It isn't, by today's standards, it's not over the top. And I think because of the acting and the, char- the how the characters in the film interact is what makes the film feel scary and claustrophobic. Like, yes, you have these zombies attacking them, but it's the characters in the film's paranoia yeah. trying to... Fight for control and survival is what makes the film gripping. I think that's what George Romero is trying to get at: is that yeah, you have these zombies attacking, but man's biggest problem and biggest fear is man itself, and that's what makes it a compelling film to watch, scary and an interesting character piece, especially with like the fact that it being in black and white, which most people today would scoff at, like oh, I'm not going to watch a film in black and white. And the fact that the gore there is like no gore really it's very tame it's very well and and i would argue that the child is one of the scariest parts of night of the living dead um for multiple reasons not only is she just spooky itself to see as a zombie but also it romero infuses that sort of dread of being a parent of being unable to protect your child, it's a very early theme in a zombie film, of being unable to stop the process. And there's, then, that, you know, not be able to com, you know, yeah, combat it. Because once it happens, she's not able to attack back because it's her child. Like, that's kind of a... Which I understand, which I understand is a constant theme in zombie films and TV and games. is When somebody that you love turns into a zombie, they can't come to grips with it and, you know, deal with it in a way that would suit in their best interest. Mm-hmm. But I think today it kind of gets blown to the max and over the top where you see in, like, The Walking Dead now, it, the fucking epidemic's been going on for, like, a year now. Like, I can't kill my own... It's like, you've been dealing with this for a year now. This shouldn't be, like, an issue for you. You should, you know... And I think the fact that this is, like, day one of the outbreak... Mm-hmm. Maybe that lends to the story. It's, you know. Yeah. Because that's something that annoys me when I, like, because I, I do like zombie films. I do find them interesting if they're done well. And I think the fact that when, like, one of the problems for me when it comes to The Walking Dead is that it's, like, a year into the thing and you still have people acting like, oh, I don't know what to do. It's like, how the hell have you survived this long? Yeah. I know. Um, and I think that, you know, with what the, what Night of the Living Dead offers is that it's very quick. And we're, we're really thrown into the mix quickly. There's, you know, a few zombies, and then they find shelter, and then there's a lot of zombies. Yeah. It's very quick. It's not... It's claustrophobic, too, in the fact that it takes... Like, basically all takes place in the, the bar, the house in the barn. Yeah. It's... And basically the main story is, yes, there are zombies attacking, the undead are alive, and eating human flesh, but it's more the claustrophobia of these strangers who don't know each other, can't trust each other. And you gotta remember, too, this film 
takes place in the late 60s. Our lead character is a black man. And he's fighting for control and how to how to deal with the situation the best he can with a, an older white man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could read into that as, you know, kind of a race relations motif and theme and kind of think of it that way as you know, how that all relates. Or you can just think about it as two people who can't get along. Yeah. I, I, it works on both dynamics, I think, that you can kind of get that commentary from it with... Or you can just look at it as a straight people just can't get along type of film. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, you know, it's been a while since I've seen it last, but um, I do think that them being locked in the farmhouse and um, especially like that, for the first part, which is pretty iconic for Barbara running in the cemetery, you know, um, those are all things that really are intensely frightening just because of the way that it quickly escalates and that's what i take away a lot from night of the living dead even without the political and social commentary um i think the ending too is me- quite memorable yeah the, the i mean spoiler but the scene as the film's over 50 years old yeah not quite spoiler the fact that nobody lives at the end is you know how often do you see that? There's no there's no heroic survival or triumph. It ends in tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, as kind of a cynic myself, I think that's a, that's a great thing. I kind of wish films would end more on a kind of like cynic note. Like, yeah, it's not what you want to see, but this is what happens. Yeah, it does have a cynical, you it, know. It's not, yeah, it doesn't end A lot of films have copied that. It doesn't end on a high, happy note. The heroes are triumphant. It ends mm-hmm. on, they're all screwed in the end. And I, again, I think that's very impactful. I think we could get more as an audience if we kind of experience that more often. Right. I agree. Um, you know, and right along with that is uh, Dawn of the Dead, which, you know, occurs. It's the sequel, in, in effect, to Night of the Living Dead. Um, and I know that's kind of your huge thing. You you know you love the the the, the Dawn of the Dead and it's the it's you my love the Dead series. It's basically. my it, I, I do love the Dead series and actually it's my favorite Dead film. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually as much as I love Night, it's not even, it's like my third favorite Dead film. Mm-hmm. Um, Dawn to me is a, it's a great film. I think it's basically Night except bigger on a greater scale. It's fantastically acted the story is pure simple and minimalistic to the point though where it's perfect they didn't have to go into much detail Mm -hmm. and I think the effects to it are fucking fantastic I think it's very enjoyable to see what happens because this film came out 10 years after the first film where yeah there are some kind of gory parts to the first film but it's very minimalistic, mm-hmm. especially by today's standards. It's terribly minimalistic. Where in this film, you get to actually see guts and gore getting torn out, a lot of bloodshed. You get to see a man's head get blown off by a shotgun, a zombie's head get chopped off by a helicopter. It's all very memorable. It's a, in fact, the, fa- the fact that it takes place in a mall is beyond iconic it's been you know dead rising copied that right they made you know capcom made dead rising 
It's and the remake too is also very iconic because it came out in two thousand four, same time that Shaun of the Dead and Land of the Dead came out. So, it's a you know, to me it's Romero's best film actually. I think he, it's probably his most accomplished film. Mm hmm. I agree. Um, I I really like the sort of like the 70s gore about it basically that's one of the big things that I'm a huge fan of in the film Tom Savini did great effects it's, it's amazing yes the, the great effects I, I say when we get to the next film outside of Day of the Dead it's you know mm -hmm. it's right up there you think Day of the Dead has better yes I, I we can combine them right now um uh, Day of the Dead you think has better effects yes. than Dawn of the Dead uh, yeah no Day of the Dead's perfect like it's one of the high biggest highlights of that film is mm -hmm. its effects and with what you see going on in that film with how the zombies look because they they look more like you would expect the zombie to look they look more you know uh like decayed yeah decayed decrepit they're falling atrophy. apart yeah um whereas in Dawn of the Dead they look good but they're like grayish their skin's like a grayish blue the the blood's very kind of hyper hyper uh, sense. It's very like kind of more on the pink side, and mm -hmm. you know, which lends to this like kind of scare factor and uh, makes it over the top. Where Day's gore is more like realistic, and you can get more afraid of it because it's not. It doesn't look as campy, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tom Savini makes a little appearance in Dawn of the Dead. It's a great cameo, too. Mm -hmm. He's hilarious in it. Yeah, I do love that. Um, what do you think of the the uh, overarching metaphor of oh, Dawn of the Dead? Oh, God. What, you, <laughs> what do you think of people, that? People have, as most people probably watching this know, I say it's a satire on like commercialization and consumerism. Yep. Um, I totally disagree with that. I don't think Romero... I. I find it hard to believe that that's what he was going for in the film. Mm -hmm. I understand you can kind of glean that a little bit from the scenes of them when they finally gotten all the zombies out of the mall, and they're like, at, you know, taking clothes and trying, you know, looking their best and taking money from the bank and living the high life. That yeah, you can see that, and the zombies coming into the mall, like oh, you know. But at the same time, it's the late 70s. Malls weren't really a big thing in America at the time. That kind of more blossomed in the 80s. Like, I don't really see it as being this big metaphor on American commercialism and consumerism and how we're just zombies buying into products and stuff. I, mm -hmm. It's a little bit there, but I don't think it's like an overarching theme to the film. I just Do you think that it was mostly an accident? I, I do. I, I think... Once people kind of probably were looking too deep into the film, it just kind of like, hey, that's what I, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. I, I really don't think it's an overarching theme. I think each dead film has the main theme of left to our own device and devices. People mm. are, we are our own worst enemy and we'll screw ourselves over. I agree. And that's you see that in every dead film with a different twist. Like it's kind of race relations in the first film. Day it's kind of military control and theme. Land it's capitalism with you know, with the Green Noah and Dennis Hopper having the money and being and then diary it's the media. 
survival. I don't really know what the fuck he's trying to, mm-hmm. go, uh, if anything, go for. But I mean, I I honestly think it's kind of a happy accident for the film that people kind of gleam that commentary. Because honestly, I don't see it. I agree. And even if it is a, a big portion of the film, it has no impact on how I view the film. Mm-hmm. It does. It, like I don't walk away from the film either way with that viewpoint having impact how I view it. I still think it's a great film, though. Mm-hmm. I still think the fact that it's the zombie outbreaks becoming worse. You can tell that by the opening scene with the the news station trying to get out warnings and they can't get a signal and they can't even air. You have this supposed expert saying how to kill them and what's going on, and but they can't yet explain it. Which is great. I you know that part of it is great too. Has been referenced quite a bit. Um, you know I, I love that part of, of about how they kill the zombies. That's you know that that part has been become iconic. Throughout. And then after that, you have like the SWAT scene, which kind of seems out of place. Mm-hmm. Which it seems totally ex- like an exploited, like, exploitative part. Yeah, right. Like, you know, you got the cops who like, I want to fucking kill these fucking zombies, fucking, you know, saying, you know, the guy's spouting off racial slurs for no reason about, you know, black people, Latinos, they should <laughs> be killing, breaking into there. It's totally exploitative, which fits the 70s at the time. Very much so of, like, the Italian theme that we're, you know, right around that time, before and after, we're getting a lot of Italian films, uh, and, you know, Dawn of the Dead being one of them, released in Italy as well, that we're really hitting that sort of exploitation part of cannibalism and different cultures and things like that. So, yeah, definitely. But it's, like, it's definitely a worthwhile watch. Ken Forey's awesome in it. Yeah, Ken Forey's it. Pretty much always awesome. We talked about him in Halloween yeah, um, remake, but it's got great effects. It is on the long side, but I think the fact that it's such a simple film, it works. It works well, and I think yeah, I'll agree. The only thing that really does bother me all the time in Romero in a lot of Romero's dead films is the women. They're very weak. Except except in, except in day in day except in day. Um, but other than that, generally, he tends to write women characters that are useless. Barbara in Night of the Living Dead, absolutely useless. After the first ten minutes, useless. She's comatose. She's just comatose. She's so shell-shocked by what's going on. And throughout De- Dawn, you have the main female lead. She's like useless until like the very end where she gets taught how to fly, how to shoot. Yeah, Francine can't yeah. do anything. You know, she, she. Uh, other than that, other than the men coming to the rescue to you know, tell her how to do things, she she can't do anything either, so... Now, that, that's you, one thing that I don't like about the Dead films, but... Well, as I was say, uh, have you heard how the original Dawn of the Dead was supposed to end? Mm. I don't know. Instead, instead of them flying off into the sun... Because that's, that's the one problem... Um, yeah. The, one of the problems I do have with Dawn is the ending. Yeah. Like, I hate the fact that Ken Forey surrounded, and at the end, you have, like, this A-team music come blasting in and he like karate kicks and chops his way through zombies to get to the helicopter and him and Francine fly off. Yep. Originally it's supposed to end like he commits suicide because he knows he's you know he's trapped he's screwed and that Francine commits suicide too by throwing her head into the helicopter propellers because she knows she's screwed too mm-hmm. and then it ends panning to like the showing on the helicopter that the helicopter had no gas in it so if, even if they flew off they weren't going to get anywhere. 
And that, to me, would have fit, like, you know, the theme of, like, because the first film ends on such a down note, too. That would have fit with yeah, the theme right. a lot more, too. And actually, I would have appreciated it, because that's one of the few things that kind of takes me out of the film, is the fact that... And at the end, you have Ken. Fine. Yeah, everything's okay. <laughs> then you have Ken Forey, like you know, doing karate kicks and shit against zombies. It just comes off as totally comical, like. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I agree. Um, for time's sake, we're gonna move on <laughs> from that. I mean, you can spend a lot of time talking about Dawn of the Dead, but um, we should really move on to Day of the Dead, um, which we talked about a little bit, but it. How, how does it fare for you? I mean, where does it sit on the spectrum of the dead? It's gods? my second favorite. It's your second favorite? It's very close to the first one, actually. I, it's And that would, I think that would be controversial to a lot of people. I, I, I don't really think that most people enjoy Day of the Dead that much. I think if you're a fan of the series, it's growing on you. Yeah. I, I can see where... Because the first time I saw it, when I was, like, when I was a little bit younger, I didn't enjoy it either. But as the, the more and more I've watched it as time has gone on, I've enjoyed it a lot more for what it is. Because the soundtrack, too, it's like this weird Caribbean synth sound. Mm-hmm. Sounds out of place, but now, and like, it's very minimalistic, but now that I listen to it, I love it. And the plot, like, the dialogue, and it's kind of takes the Dawn of the Dead plot uh, dialogue, which is very over the top and campy. It like, is, yeah. You have, like, stupid lines like, we got this, man! We got this by the ass! You got lines like that, and every other line in days like "fucking this, fucking that, motherfucking fuck, fuck," and it comes off as stupid and campy and corny. But but as you watch the film more and more, you can appreciate what's going on because this film takes place when the zombie apocalypse is it's based, it's taken over. Right? There's people, real sentient human beings are very limited, and I think the atmosphere of the film. It's terrific. And I actually think it's better than Dawn. I think the fact that they're in this very claustrophobic yes. military yeah. base that takes place underground, underground and you have 20 survivors left in there trying to figure out how to deal with this situation that they're in, which looks like they're totally hopeless, is... Well, the one scene that takes place underground where all the zombies are, are coming in and they're fighting them off... Yeah, near the end. Near the end. It's really great. It's it is very claustrophobic because we know as a as a viewer, there's no place to run at that point. There's no it, you're underground because they, they, they come through because the zombies are coming through, through the, one entrance. One t- yeah, the tunnel there. The so where you know we know where is there to go? There's not really any place to go. You're gonna have to fight off hordes of zombies in order to get anywhere. So it's very tense in that in that situation. You also got you know you've got your assholes. Captain, um, Captain Rhodes, Rhodes is, mem- is me- the most memorable I mean, character probably out of everybody. In, in- and I would think, I, I you know, I, I go two different ways on that because Rhodes is a caricature of a person. He is like the most evil person that you can think of. There's no really no redeeming qualities about him. There's Not at nothing all. at all. So in in I go two two different ways on this because I like that you know Romero is able to put this just total asshole into this thing and it kind of adds a little bit of a dose of comedy because it's just so over the top and crazy that he's such a dick but at the same time there's that all that other feeling that's like he's a caricature of a person they're 
I mean, I really hope that there's no one that's as terrible as Rose. I mean, no, I agree. Like, it is so over the top that it's ridiculous. But I think it kind of lends itself to the fact that the film takes place so far into the apocalypse where they're totally screwed. Yeah. He, his, his, he just took over and chained the command because his captain was killed. So he's now leading. Yeah. And he's just trying to do whatever the fuck he can to survive. Like, so is it over the top in how he acts? Yes, it is. And how evil and sadistic he is. But it's become dog-eat-dog. Dog. You gotta do whatever the fuck you gotta do to survive. And to be honest with you, at this time, he doesn't want to deal with it. Because the whole point in the film involves the scientists there are trying to figure out how to reverse the zombie cure. But the main scientist in the film... He's more worried about trying to domesticate them. Logan, I believe. Yeah, Doctor Logan. Logan, which they refer to him as Frankenstein during the entire yeah. film, is um, he's real. You know, he comes to the conclusion there's no point in trying to fix it. This isn't what the world's like. Learn to domesticate them. Yeah, which is kind of a commentary on its own. And you got the du duel between the scientist and that, and how that affects humanity. And then you got Rhodes, who's doesn't want to deal with that shit. He just wants to survive. And that's where the blows come. Because this film, for the most part, is all dialogue. It's heavy on dialogue. It's very dialogue heavy. There's For the gore that's in it, it's, which is awesome, it's not until the later last quarter last of the act, film yeah. Yeah, where you get to really see it. It's, but for the most part, it's just dialogue, dialogue. The psychology of the film, the crampness and the quarters of the film, and I think that's what makes it really good. I think, again, I think when the film probably came out, it was the black sheep of the film. Like, what the hell is this shit? Yeah. But I think now, is the more and more you watch it and view it, you'll get to appreciate it more and more. Because it truly is a great film. Yep. It is a good film. I just recently saw it not too long ago for, for, for the first time because I kind of skipped over it. And, you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed... How Bub is kind of the precursor to Land of the Dead. Yeah. Learning, zombies learning how to use... Which is a very interesting concept. It is. Unfortunately, Land of the Dead really doesn't have anything else. No, they don't add anything. It just happens. Like, yeah. Like, Matt, like, yeah. he knows what the gun is now. And so, unfortunately, I'm not a huge fan of Land of the Dead, or anything else for that matter, that comes after it. No. Um, but, you know, I, I do like that Bub is a precursor to that, so... Um, we're going to move on to a film that actually jumps way back in time. You know, back to um, almost, we're almost coming up on the century uh, anniversary of it. Because here we are in 2015. It released in 1922. Obviously, of course, we're talking about Nosferatu. Um, and that, that kind of is crazy to me that we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of Nosferatu, for one thing. But... Um, on the other, I think that it is really one of the best horror films of the older period. And that's interesting to me, too, because it is a silent film. It doesn't, you know, the one thing that it really has going for it is its classical but intense soundtrack, for one thing. You know, and it, that depends on what kind of, what version you watch, if you're watching it. There have been some live screenings of it with symphonic orchestra playing. Um, but the the actual soundtrack to it is very intense, I think, um, which really adds a lot to it. But uh, 
that other than that, you have Max Shrek as Nosferatu himself, which just is incredibly creepy. Just terribly, I think the the whole thing, <laughs> his movements, his um, reactions, they're all very very suspenseful. And um, not only that, but you're getting the um, you're getting the, the the strange movement of the camera, which is was basically going to be crank at that point. Um, and you know, it's not entirely, um, it's kind of dreamlike in the way that pe people move in the film because, you know, there is that kind of time lapse. So you're getting the, the, the time lapse of the movement and then you're also getting a Max Shrek really hitting that awesome, terrifying character, uh, sitting straight up in the coffin or creeping around hallways. I would say the very famous, you know, scene of him the stairs and you get to see the shadow yeah perfectly with his, how his movement looks yeah i remember watching it one halloween uh this was actually the first year that i started blogging um i watched it during halloween at college because i was alone at college i i wasn't able to come home for halloween and um being very creeped out in my dorm room by nosferatu just you know it was a very you know and at first i was wondering you know how good can this film really be? It's a silent film. It's, it's you know, there's nothing in it that I feel like is going to really scare me. But just the whole atmosphere of it and the, the way that it's set up, um, kind of taking on the, the version of Bram Stoker's Dracula is just really great. And it's been too long since I've seen it, I honestly. Seen, I haven't seen it in quite a few years. Yeah, it's been too long since I've seen it. Because Max Shrek really does a great job as Nosferatu, and, and F.W. Murnau, a great director, um, but he also did Faust, and uh, you know the the modern the, the uh, 1926 version of Faust. Um, just a great director, and um, um, really, you know, one of the best in the in the vampire genre. I think is Nosferatu. Um, anything you want to add to that? I think it's just definitely. Uh... One of those ones if you, that you, if, if you can get over the fact that it's a silent film, which yeah. I can't, which I don't have any problems with, because yeah. I grew up watching like TCM. Yeah. Um, it's definitely something worth checking out. I think the fact that it is a silent film, especially, especially lends itself to the horror genre. I think again, that's where the whole your imagination can kind of lend to the film yeah. of what's going on and like you have to think more you have to pay more attention it's not something you can just tune out and play in the background you have to be attentive to what you're watching to fully grasp it and get what's going on yeah I agree I agree and uh, I guess we'll move on to Scream which we kind of covered in our West Craven retrospective but we wanted to return to it a little bit for uh, the Halloween probably the most memorable 90s slasher film or horror film in general yeah, probably. I mean, I, I would say... At least for me, it is. Yeah. For, you know, I really do love Scream. I think it's a, a movie that has stuck with us, even despite sort of the dated references and stuff that's in, that are in it. Um, I really like the... I, I like any movie that does a, a meta commentary on... The horror genre. The horror genre. Um, Cabin in the Woods being one of them. Um... I, I, I like that appeal, and so Scream has that in, in spades, and so um, 
you know, that's one of the reasons why it really stands out to me as a, as a great movie and one to watch during the Halloween season, too. I, Ghostface is definitely one of the most memorable memorable faces in the slasher genre. Yep, yes. And definitely kicked off the, the kind of the boom of slasher films that mm-hmm. you would see in the 90s, which probably a lot of people don't remember. Like, we were talking earlier, like, I know what you did last summer, Urban Legend... Films, no. films like that would not have come out if it weren't for Scream during that time. I do really like, um, I, I like. Well, I would, I shouldn't say really like, but I have a, an affinity for, you know, I I know what you did last summer, um, and um, Urban Legend and Urban Legend Final Cut. They used to play that all the time on TV. I used to watch that. I thought Urban Legend Final Cut was what I thought my college life was going to be like. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, I, I you know they really did. It did kick off sort of that same thing, uh, the the genre uh, uh, ushering in the slasher genre for you know the nineties and in that coming those coming years, um, and it really was a really successful slasher film for the time because at that point there wasn't very many. There, there, you know, there weren't very many slasher films or, you know, really good horror films at the time. So for Scream well, to come in and to say what the feel I can think of that's probably wasn't that successful that I can, that I think of. But half pretty halfway decent slasher film that came out probably before that was like Candyman. Yeah, that would have been before. I remember can't being like yep. as, as a kid being scared shitless as can, Candyman. Candyman was very very scary. Yeah. Um, but other than that, it's, you know. Yeah. Not really, like, you had different kind of takes on the horror genre at the time. Like, you had The Crow coming out in the early 90s, which kind of kind of fits with the early... Horror, yeah. yeah, it kind of fits in with the early 90s, kind of grungy style. Yep. Um, you had the Chucky films pumping out sequels, mm-hmm. and still at the time. The Leprechaun films. Um, Puppet Master films were another one. Um... But, yeah, I mean, nothing that really... I mean, I think when Scream came around, it really, you know, it tackled the genre. Um, we, you, For one thing, you had Drew Barrymore, who was billed as a, a lead. A top, it. yeah, top player in the film. Top, you know, you got Drew Barrymore plastered all over posters for it. And what happens? She dies in the first it's like ten psych- minutes. It's like Psycho. It's yeah. playing off the whole, you know, with Hitchcock and Psycho. Yeah. Uh, which is a great idea. It's totally great. It's perfect idea, which it's a great way to kind of throw the audience off because you had this big name actor or actress that's supposed to be the star of the film and you kill them off like that. So what's going to happen throughout the rest of the film? It's I think it's key though that they stuck to it re- quite quickly. It was a, an opening moment for the film. You take something like the remake to um, Nightmare on Elm Street uh, and that film follows a protagonist for quite a while before she ends up dying. And that feels like a slap in the face to the viewer because you've invested so much time that now when she dies, um, there's like a point of view shift that's just very awkward for the film. With Scream, that doesn't happen. We're given a set amount of time, not a, not a significant investment of our time, but a, a sort of interlude to the film and then immediately we switch off to Nev Campbell. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's key. And I think uh, other films, namely, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, the remake, um, 
tried to use that and failed because of that, you know, that, that uh, difficulty with switching point of views so quickly. So, um, you know, and if you wanted to hear more about what we thought of Scream in the Scream series, definitely look back to episode four of the Wes Craven retrospective. But it's definitely the most parodied, one of the most parodied horror films of all time. It too. is, yeah. It's, it's the basis, you know, but, you know behind scary movie. Scary movie. Um, the lesser known, which I think is a funnier film, is uh, Shriek, if I know what you did last yeah. Friday the 13th. Yep. Um, which I would say, check that out. It's a hilarious B-movie parody of, like, Scream. And I know, obviously, I know what you did last summer because it's part of the title. Because there's, that, kind of going off track, that film opens up with, like, it's parodying the Scream opening with uh, the blonde chick answering a phone call to a killer. And she's mm -hmm. like, I got, he's like, I got horror movie questions for you. And you have, like, him breaking into the house, and then they're running around the table, and she's like, oh, no, oh, no, and the killer's, like, just slowly chasing her around, and, like, the phone rings, he picks it up, he's like, it's a call for you, and hilarious. I say check it out. The only big-name actor in that film is Tom Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a big name, yeah. but... <laughs> but it's, it's definitely funny, and uh, hits on it, um... As we Ryan said before, when we uh, did our West Craven retrospective, Scream is definitely a iconic horror film. It's basically, at least in my eyes, and I could be totally wrong, it's the, probably the biggest horror film of the '90s. And yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest. Definitely stuck around. Yeah. Um, along with you know, and this is branching out. We're we're jumping from the '90s now to the to the 2000s. Saw is the huge part of the 2000s. It's, so, it's the horror film of the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, if we were going to do uh, horror, I love the 2000s. Saw would be number one. We're going to, you know, we're going to stick with that. Um, and, you know, it's, we're not just Saw, but the franchise in general was synonymous with Halloween. Um, Saw itself, the 2004 film, was kind of a quiet film. It came out around Halloween. Uh, there, you know, there was some um, feedback on it you know, that it was a good film. Uh, had some pretty big names like Carrie Elwes, uh, Danny Glover, big big names attached to it. And then quickly from there, it escalated into just a huge franchise. You got Saw 2 hit in theaters in, uh, during Halloween of 2005, and then from there, it was just basically every Halloween, you could be assured there's going to be another Saw film in theaters. And I, for one, was sucked into that torture porn madness. I wasn't. See, I was interested. I actually, as I told you before, I have never seen a single Saw film before. Yep. And the main reason is because growing up in high school, Saw was a big thing for us. And I remember around the senior years uh, when Saw 3 was coming out. And I thought about seeing it, but then when I heard, I believe it's Saw 3, that like one of the opening scenes you had one of the victims getting their legs violently broken in this like con contraption that Jigsaw came up with. One of our friends threw up in the theater because it was so disgusting. That told me, like, no, I'm not going to see this. Because when I was a kid, I broke my leg really badly, like snapped my leg in half. So the, me having to kind of see that would give me, like, Vietnam War flashbacks <laughs> of me breaking my leg. I was like, yep, nope, I have no interest yeah. in this. I mean, now I'm more inclined to check it out because yeah. it's such a big 
franchise in the horror genre, but that's what's caused me to stay away from it in general is because I, by the third film, it's become very synonymous with the torture porn genre, which oh, yeah. is starting to become very popular during the time, especially with, like, Hostel coming out during that mm-hmm. same time period, too. Yep. Torture porn was a big part of it. Um, and I will say that, you know, torture porn is a, is a genre that's really looked down upon, and for good reason. It really copies itself. Um, it's not unlike what we saw coming out in the 70s and 80s, where there were very, very gory moments of, of the horror film genre. Um, I wouldn't say that, like, Saw or Hostel or any of the other ones that were really trying to mimic that torture porn genre, they're really House doing anything. Thousand Corpses. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're really doing anything different or uh, more obscene than what we would see in the 70s or 80s. It's just gore effects, obviously, in, in advanced. Be- um, done better. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're able to be done better. And um, not only that, but the inventiveness of it and the ability to do the traps of what we'll see in Saw added to the tension because not only was Saw this friend, not, not the first film, but the franchise, not only was it about um, the gore, it was about the lead up to the gore, what you might expect to see um, that was so intense about the film. So you're working through it. And when you're going first going to see the film, I, I even felt some apprehension about seeing the films at first because you just really don't know what you're going to see. You don't know if you're, are you going to see legs shattered? Are you going to see, uh, your head split, you know, whatever you're going to see, it's not apparently clear when you first get into the trap and you're probably going to sit there for a couple minutes feeling very, very uncomfortable as the victim tries to escape from whatever trap Jigsaw has created, um, knowing full well that they probably won't get out of it. And I can see how the franchise kind of had to die off, because each film basically basically becomes... They have to one-up the traps. You have to one-up the traps every time, because that's what people are coming for. They're not not coming for some deep intellectual story or character development. It's... Well, what traps are going to be used this time? Yeah. And every, you know, if you're pumping out a film every year, you're going to run out of ideas for traps and yeah, how to try to, you know, one up more and, inventive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that you know, they, I, again, like all the all genre fare, like all um, sequels in the in in horror movies, they get progressively worse as you work along, and you know, mostly because story was pushed aside for traps that's what people wanted to see they wanted to know you know what's the new uh you know the new way of killing people that jigsaw has come up with you got different writers and directors like every other film yeah so you have different people um but the original saw is actually really a, a good film um not only because it has the the gore with gore effects it does um, but also because it's the one where Jigsaw feels the most human um, because his traps are avoidable. We do see that someone escapes from them. Um, as you get further along in the Saw series, they become less and less about victims being able to escape. Um, they become more about seeing these people tortured in the most cruel way possible. And Saw, the original, was really about an, um, uh, an experimental way to help people through their problems, um, basically. 
If you were willing to sacrifice something, you could. Yeah, you could finish. You could finish the yeah. game basically. Um, and so not only that, but there was also that just huge twist at the end of the film, which, to be honest, was very difficult for a film to one up after that. I mean, obviously, each of the Saw films had its own twist to it at the at which the I, haven't, end. I haven't seen the film, but I do know how it ends and what the twist is. Yeah. Which, that is remarkable to me that nobody would have checked on the well the body. Well, they're chained up, so difficult to check. They're they're on separate sides of the of the bathroom, and there's a body in the middle. I know, so. but you would have he had to. You would have been able to notice like some sort of breathing or something. Shallow it's, breathing. I don't know. Yeah. And he's also cl- fully clothed in like a jacket and stuff. So I mean, I guess you know I could believe it. I could believe that it was the realism of it. Um, but I think. Saw is the penultimate version of what we'll see. It's general. It's not really, though it's violent, it's not really a form of the torture porn genre so much so. Um, we do some see some gross traps. We do see a couple people do, are tortured. and But, you know, people like, um, you know, people like uh, uh, Shawnee Smith do escape from their traps. So well, she would become a big part of the franchise. Yeah, she later. would become yep a big part. But I think that really what sets Saw apart from like the sequels, the later sequels, is that it does feel sort of fair for what Jigsaw has in store for these people. So uh, also a really good atmosphere to it. Very 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 dark. Um, perfect for Halloween. So uh, moving on, um, Poltergeist. The 1982 version, not that, not that remake that really, really is very not that, good, very not very good. Uh, I can, I, I've said very twice in that, so very not very good. Um, I didn't see the remake. I, this is I the knew, 19. I knew, yeah. I knew to stay away from it. Yeah, this is the 1982 Toby Hooper version. Uh, with thanks to Steven Spielberg, who had a huge part in not only the writing but the direction I say with some I say kind with of some people claim that he might have directed the film yeah like Toby Hooper there's some sort of yeah there's some you know and I honestly don't really care and I don't think both either Toby Hooper or Steven Spielberg care either at this point it's been a huge success for um you know over 30 years and who cares at this point um they're both you know they both have their names on it not really a big issue um but a lot of people would beg to differ and it, it, you know, it really affects them. So <laughs> some, for some reason, even though they're not receiving royalties on it. So, um, you know, it's got it, big stars for the time. Uh, Craig T. Nelson coach coach, uh, at this time, actually not coach, <laughs> but, um, just, you know, uh, I, you know, I love Craig T. Nelson in this film because he is such a kind of a goofball in it. Um, that, and, uh, Joe Beth Williams, um, you know, they are both free spirits in this film, and I really like that. Um, they don't really seem so much like parents as they do, you know, like fun-loving adults. Um, there's a there's a moment in Poltergeist that always gets to me where um, Diane uh, is kind of forcing uh, Carol Ann to sit on a chair to be pushed across the kitchen. Um, where where they found like some sort of paranormal current, where if they sit on the chair, they'll be from one spot to the other, they'll be pushed by the paranormal the, by the spirit. Um, 
she's both afraid and you know comforted by that fact at the same time and i really like that and you know craig t nelson getting home uh and seeing that they, they kind of react strangely it's not the same sort of feel, the you know reaction that you would see in a normal paranormal movie which would basically be either um fear let's get the fuck out of this house or it would be um sort of a unacceptance of it it's you know I, there's something that we can explain about this there's got to be a scientific explanation for it so um the way that the parents react is i think really interesting um, and I, I, I really like Poltergeist. I think it was very creepy and, you know, as a kid seeing it, it was, I can't even imagine, you know, seeing it since it was rated PG. Can't even imagine seeing it as like, like I said, uh, right before the PG-13. Yes. Yeah. Can't even imagine seeing it as like an eight year old kid seeing. You got that like one, one scene with the, in the mud with the bot, you know, skeletons. Yeah, with the floating. real skeletons. Um, yeah. You know, I can't even imagine. It probably would have terrified the crap out of me seeing it at that time. Um, but, you, you know, there's the whole thing about the curse. The curse behind Poltergeist. Using real skeletons as uh, as props. Um, unfortunately, we did lose Heather O'Rourke at a young age. Uh, Dominique Dunn as well. Both, uh, both lost at a young age. Um, a lot of sort of bad things happening on the set of Poltergeist. I don't know if we can really uh, relate that to a curse so much as, bad the, luck. yeah, bad luck, the unfortunate events of uh, having, um, you know, young kids on set. Uh, Dominique Dunn, obviously murdered. That's you know that was murdered by her boyfriend at the time. Um, so, but it's really interesting to look at Poltergeist in that way um, to see the curse behind it. I think. You know, even though it's a good movie, I think part of why it's been around for so long is that sort of curse behind it. I think people really latch on to that, and they... It's also, like kind of like with Scream of the 90s, it's often very parodied film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we get a lot of parodies of that. It's had its own uh, TV spinoff as well. Canadian. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um... Nightmare Before Christmas is uh, one of the big ones that um, I had when I was a kid. I know you're not a huge fan of Nightmare Before Christmas. I mean, I've seen it a thousand times like everybody else, but yeah. to me, it's just been it's oversaturated. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. It's, I mean, it's, it's become a, a huge part of our pop culture, not just for Halloween, but in general. Like, people have adopted it. And I see it more as a Christmas film than a Halloween I film, too. I generally like to watch it in between. So like, like my Thanksgiving. My Thanksgiving, yeah, yeah. That's I think that's the ideal, optimal time to watch it because you're just coming off of Halloween, which basically Nightmare Before Christmas is coming off of Halloween. It it begins at the end of Halloween, um, and you're moving into Christmas. Um, one thing that really gets me looking at the IMDb IMDb page is that it's only seventy six minutes long. It's an hour and sixteen minutes long. It's, yeah, it's a quick film and yeah. it's a quick easy. Just surprises watch. me. But I mean, it's. It's never like really, even as a kid, it never really captured my interest. It's just it comes off as just boring. But I'm not overall like I know it's not directed by Tim Burton, but it has a lot of Tim Burton's influence in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the biggest fan of Tim Burton to begin with. I like his two Batman efforts, and I like Edward Scissorhands. Other than that, it's just 
This stuff doesn't really captivate me. Mm-hmm. And no, I, like, I do like James and the Giant Peach. I do like that film. It just doesn't really have anything to do with Halloween, but it kind of has that, you know, that Nightmare Before Christmas kind of feel and animation to the what's going on in it. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing it when I was a kid, um, and I went to the theater. My parents were concerned. I think I was like, let's see, when was it? 1993? So I would have been four. Yeah, like four, four or five. I think I would. No, I guess I would have been four. Um, and they were concerned. They were like, are you sure you want to see this? This looks a little scary for you. Um, and I was adamant. I was like, yes, I'm going to see it. I, I need to see it. So I loved it. Just, I think that became my favorite film at that point. And, you know, I've, I've had a, a passion for it ever since. Um, as time goes on, obviously, it's not my favorite film anymore. But I do still like it. You know, between between the periods of Halloween and Christmas, I think it, it really hits um, on both of that of those spectrums, and uh, you know, definitely uh, definitely one to include um, in your Halloween proceedings. Um, I mean, I definitely say it's like I mean, like I said, I may a, not care care for it, uh-huh. but it's an iconic Which, film. Yeah, like, it's, I mean, you know, more than Corpse Bride or Frankenweenie, I think it it hits on the Halloween, you know. More. I mean, it made Kingdom Hearts too. So, it did. I that's I love that part of Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> um, we decided that we would throw in Cowboy Bebop the movie because maybe not a lot of people know, uh, but the anime Cowboy Bebop the movie does have Halloween in it. It's set around Halloween. It does take place during Halloween. It's set around Halloween. Um, and. There's not, I mean, it's not a big part of the film, but there are some jack-o'-lanterns, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do see some decoration, Halloween decorations, and um, they want to release a deadly virus, so that's kind. it kind of fits in with some other Halloween themes. Um, you know, the, it's not technically like a, a horror film. It's yeah, a horror it's, film. It's, it's, it's an action film. Um uh, I am, I personally, I'm the one that mentioned them, because I, I mentioned it jokingly. Because that because it does have Halloween in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cowboy Bebop is my favorite anime of all time. You know, it's right up there with Lupin Third. It's a great mobile great gu- mobile suit Gundam and uh-huh. Yu Yu Hakusho. It's my favorite anime of all time. This is probably like my favorite anime movie of all time because it's so well done. The animation's fantastic and and it's a very enjoyable film. It's two hours long, but it's a really quick watch. The action, it's great. Um, it's one of the few animes that has great dub in it so if you're not into watching your film in japanese the, the english dub is fantastic uh the villain in it vincent played by an english darren norris who voices cosmo from fairly odd parents mm-hmm. he's also the janitor from Ned's declassified if you remember that show um he does a fantastic job actually in a voice work that you wouldn't ex- expect him to do and it's just a great like an adult adventure film that has, you know, focuses, you know, takes place during the Halloween time. Like Ryan said, it's not really a Halloween film, but it's got it part as the plot. It's just kind of like an interesting side offer. Oh, yeah. If, especially if you're into anime, because most horror animes that I've seen are fucking awful. Helsing? 
Helsing. <laughs> I know a lot of people like Helsing, but Helsing is... I really can't get into Helsing is terrible. Outside of the TV show, the Mr. Big theme at the end, you know, that nice 1980s rock, hair rock band. They got a great end song, but the Helsing TV show is terrible. Yeah. The Ultimate OVA is tolerable, but not even that great. Yeah. I don't see why people love that at all. Zombie Loan's a terrible mm-hmm. yeah. horror anime slash comedy, whatever, and I didn't even bother watching High School of the Dead because I that just well that's a harem so you're not or it's sort of a harem I mean so so um Beetlejuice though is I think right up there another Tim Burton film I think it's right up there uh, on the Halloween spectrum even though it doesn't take place near Halloween at all um it's really a chance for the film to just kind of go wacky uh with any uh, anything and everything. Um, Tim Burton can really do, you know, with the story, they can really go anywhere with it. And so really they choose to, you, you've got headless people, you got ghosts, you got, um, sandworms, um, a different, you know, you get, you got the, the ghost world. Um, you have, uh, Michael Keaton just acting like a total asshole in it. I know. Who would have, who would have thought after this film, Tim Burton's like, yeah, this guy, I want to be his Batman. Yeah, I want him to be Batman now. Um, you, you know, you've got an early, you know, well, not, not super early, but an early role from Alec Baldwin. Uh, plays Alec Baldwin. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you know, you, you've even got, uh, Catherine O'Hara, who, fresh off, like, Home Alone, not, not, you know, Oh, uh, off Home Alone. Yeah, actually, yeah, actually, that, this was actually after uh, Home Alone was after Beetlejuice, yeah. but so coming into uh, Beetlejuice, um, you know, she's um, playing a very different role from what she will go on to play with Home Alone. Um, all of these things kind of come together in into a like a really goofy movie that has lots of different. Um, Tim Burton creations in it. You, you're going to see a lot of different character designs. Um, there's a dance session. Yeah, the banana boat song. Yeah, banana part. boat sh- song you get. Um, you're going to have a, a very early part um, from Winona Ryder, from Winona Ryder uh, who is you know basically playing a goth version of herself, I think. Um, and so it's a very fun film and again like Hocus Pocus it was one that I really didn't think I enjoyed until I really put some time into it and saw it for what it was I think if you watch it young which basically it's supposed to be a kids movie really you know it's technically a kids movie you watch it young a lot of the themes and the, the comedy about it is very is, adult is going to go over their head yeah your head um, once you get older and honestly, I was very surprised that they dropped two f bombs in it as a PG movie. I very surprised at that. Um, but you know, it's uh, I think that it, adults will probably find a lot of the humor very funny in it. Um, so another another great one to watch for Halloween. And we're going to finish off our extensive and very long podcast episode with um, a look at the Hey Arnold Halloween special, um, which aired in the second season of Hey Arnold. So 
the animation, I recently watched it too, I watched it the other day. Um, the animation is a little bit rougher than I actually remembered from a Hey Arnold episode. Um, well, that's one of the great things about the a lot of the 90s Nicktoons, at least for me, is um, is that a lot of the animation's really kind of rough and on the cheap side. Yeah. Like, the first season is Spongebob's done on, like, a shoestring budget. Yep. They were given no money. Still funny as hell. Rocco's animation, when that was airing. Very shoestring, low budget, but uh-huh. still hilarious. Um, Harold was one of them too. It took until like a couple of seasons for them to get a decent budget, and you had more more technology getting involved. And but I think that adds to the charm of it. I think, and especially with this episode, it's freaking hilarious, and it's at least it's memorable to me because it's something we both grew up watching. Mm-hmm. Harold was one of the big show uh, Nicktoons during the time. It was like right at is during like the explosion of kind of Nicktoon shows. Because by that point, Rocco had been finished, Ren Stimpy had been done, Our Real Monsters was done, Doug was done. But you still had Rugrats going. Harold was one of the newer shows coming out. Um, you had oh yeah cartoons airing, so you had like the pilots, the Fairly Odd Parents, and you had uh, Kablam. And I think, hey Arnold, what they do with their Halloween episode is actually really inventive and f- hilarious. It's Because uh, what the episode focuses on is aliens and the way the tone and yeah. all that set is like, kind of like the X-Files, which is a huge show during that time, you know. Oh, yeah. It's so, very, yeah, I think they call it the C-Files. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, sh- the One of the shows that airs before the Orson Welles type alien hunt. So, um, I remember that, uh, I wasn't, I don't think I was a huge fan of it when it first aired, but I don't think I also realized the sort of, um, the callbacks, callbacks that it was creating, you know, to the Orson Welles, um, radio show to, to the, the history behind what it was trying, attempting to show. So, um, I think... You know, I, it takes a little bit of research as a kid. Yeah, to I think, know I think what, as, it's, as an adult, it's something you can appreciate more. Like, as a kid, I wouldn't have gotten that. Yeah. The guy that Maurice, uh, Maurice LaMarche's voicing is yeah. supposed to be Orson Welles. Right. Because the voice he does is his Orson Welles impression, which is what he does for... He's also very famous for voicing the brain on the Animaniacs. Yep. Which his voice is based off of Orson Welles. I, you know, as a kid, I don't get that, and I can appreciate the episode at a standalone basis of, like, oh, this is what's presenting to me, but now as an adult, I can appreciate it even further, because it involves aliens apparently coming down their spaceship, and what do they look like, and you have Maurice LaMarche voice acting in an Orson Welles style that calls back to the his radio show when he did the... I'm drawing, why the hell am I drawing a blank on it? The... Hmm. What's the... I'm not sure. Honestly. Shit, what the hell's the Steven Spielberg film that came out? Close Encounters of the... No, not that one. No. The one that came out when we went for your birthday to see uh, Fantastic Four, but Brandon left to go Where see... Where the Worlds? Yeah, there we go. Where are the Worlds? We got it. Yeah, Where are the Worlds? Yeah, that's because that's what the... His radio broadcast is based right, on yeah. War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds. So, and that's what the episode is basically playing off of, is his broadcast of War of the Worlds. And it's... 
it's as a kid, it's creepy listening to him, ex, you know, explaining what's going on. And but now as an adult, it's you know, it's not as creepy, but you can appreciate it for like kind of the in joke that it would be for an adult to watch. Right. It. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I do like sort of the the hunt that um, Helga's dad goes on when he's you know it, with him in the Hummer. And yeah, she, in the Hummer. Yeah, and so, you know, just those, like, little details make it a, a fun thing. And um, it also is interesting that in the Halloween episode, normally, Hey Arnold was split into two. It's a full It's a full, yeah, it's a full episode. Yeah. You get a full, you know, 22, whatever they normally do. You know, 22-minute episode instead of, you know, what you'd normally get would be, like, two 10-minute yeah. halves. So I thought that was pretty cool as well. Um, other than that, I think we've hit our 15, uh, films, and we've certainly gone over the hour marking that we normally hit. Do you have anything else you want to add for our Halloween festivities, uh, which is surprisingly in only four days? Um, just, you know, watch some good films. Yep. You know, kick back, relax. Be good out there. Yeah. Don't steal any kids' candy. Yeah, make, make sure you scare, you're wearing a scary costume, too. If you're wearing anything that looks like a princess or an angel or a football player, you can go to hell. <laughs> make sure you're scary, because you're not going to get any candy that way. You're not looking scary. That's right. Um, I will definitely be scaring some kids for Halloween at my parents' house. We're also having a Halloween party. If anybody of you, any any are in town, you can certainly stop over. Just send us an email at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com and I will give you the address. Um, other than that, you can always, we always try to end this with uh, uh, some social media links. You can catch us on iTunes. Just search for us as the Blood and Black Rum Podcast and definitely subscribe and give us a review if you want to. Tell us about how great this two hours of commentary was um you can find us on soundcloud uh i don't remember the exact link because i think the other links that i was giving were incorrect but just search for blood and black rum podcast and we'll pop up on soundcloud as well uh on twitter we really don't have anything but you can always tweet me for the moon is dead world at ryan r-y-n-e-t-m-i-a-d-w and uh if you just put blood and black rum podcast in there i will uh be able to get back to you about that um, also we're on Facebook at blood and black, uh, facebook.com slash blood and black rum podcast. And, uh, you can find us on Stitcher too, uh, which is another kind of subscription service for podcasts. So we're, we're up on that too. Uh, you can catch us pretty much anywhere. We appreciate any likes, uh, follows, subscriptions, anything that you can do to share the, share the knowledge of how great our velvety voices sound. Um, <laughs> And we really do hope that you have a great Halloween. Uh, enjoy it. Make sure that you do whatever you want to do. Hit, hit up a costume party. Make sure you, you know, you're watching some great films. Put them on in the background. Catch some Halloween specials on TV. Roseanne does some great ones. Um, so I recommend checking those out. And uh, most importantly, make sure that your night is, is scary and you, you, you live it out till midnight because Sam's going to come for you if you don't. So... Uh, have a happy Halloween. Thanks don't for blow, listening. I say don't blow those jack-o'-lanterns out don't, too early. Don't blow those jack-o'-lanterns out too early. And don't blow any uh, any uh, drunk driving either. So, 
Um, thanks for listening. Hope you have a happy Halloween, and we will catch you next time. Um, maybe not for a Halloween podcast. Uh, maybe, or a, I'm sorry, not a Halloween podcast, but a horror podcast. It might not be next time. Um, we might be checking out Rock the Casbah. So we also have the Grand Budapest Hotel. The Grand Budapest Hotel we'll be checking out because we we are, uh, you know, fans of uh, Mr. Wes Anderson. Mr. Wes Anderson. So. Um, some of those are just on the horizon, so keep listening, keep sharing. Thanks a lot. Have a happy Halloween.